2: During the pandemic, genomic sequencing technology has risen to prominence. It's been vital for understanding the coronavirus and in identifying all of its many variants. After decades being used in the lab, genomics is quickly becoming routine outside of research, and its potential is vast. Can genomic sequencing technology finally meet its much-trailed promise To transform human health. Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science, technology, and health. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist's science correspondent. Today we'll investigate genomics and the impact it could have on our healthcare.
1: The cost of the very first human genome was of the order of a billion US dollars and the cost of a genome has fallen to below a thousand US dollars.
3: We should be using whole genome sequencing, especially for disorders that are caused by many different genes. Genetics is one of
4: the best tools to focus on targeted or tailored prevention. And the other place where we can save a lot of cost is of course also giving the right person the right medication at the right dose.
2: To begin our exploration of genomic sequencing, it's helpful to start with the genome, which is an organism's complete set of genes. Those genes contain the instructions for how to make proteins. These are the molecules that perform all of the various functions that keep an organism alive, from building its cells, say, to managing the chemical reactions that extract energy from its food. Genes are made of long strands of DNA.
0: Genomic sequencing is determining the order in which the molecules that comprise your genome appear.
2: Hal Hodson reports on science and technology for The Economist.
0: And these molecules are things known as nucleic acids, and there's four of them. And your entire genome, whether it's actually your genome, Alloc, or some other person's genome, or a grasshopper's genome, are all made up of these same four letters. And the order that they're made up determines how the proteins in your body are created. It is the basic instruction set of your body. And sequencing it is telling us how it works, what those instructions are.
2: So the genome sequence is the instruction set for any form of life, and, and people might have heard of it recently because it's been instrumental in well, first identifying SARS-CoV-2 and also all its variants.
0: That is correct. One of the very first things you do when you find a new variants is you study its genome and you, you attempt to figure out that these genes do this and these genes do this. What's this virus going to be like?
2: OK, so how do the machines that do all of this genomic sequencing actually work?
0: So the machines themselves are just one step in the long process of sequencing a genome. Uh, Sort of downstream from that, you actually have to prepare the genome. So, you know, you have to smash up basically the bit of the body, whether it's the saliva or the blood or the plant stem of the thing you want to sequence the genome. And you have to extract this string of molecules that is the genome from those tissues or those fluids and get them ready to go into these machines. And basically, there's loads of different techniques for genome sequencing, but in essence, the way to think about it is you smash the genome apart into its constituents' molecules. In the presence of some other similar molecules which attach specifically to each of the four nucleic acids. And when you are finished doing this, the sort of weird magic of it is that you will have an attachment at every link of the chain so you will have a one nucleic acid link you will have a two a three all the way up to the however many molecules are in the genome and from that you can read the order of them because you've tagged on one of these sort of read me markers at every point along the genome and when you sum them all up you can understand the order that they appear in and that's what you're looking for
2: last year on babbage we spoke to sir balasubramanian who's one of the pioneering figures of so-called next-generation sequencing.
1: The way it used to be done pre-20 years ago was a method invented by Fred Sanger, who was also at Cambridge. And in fact, that is the method that was used primarily in the International Human Genome Project, which determined the very first sequence of a human genome.
2: Around 30 years ago, Professor Bala Subramanian and his colleague Sir David Klenemann were working on ways to improve this method.
1: The method that David Klenemann and I started thinking about in the mid-1990s, which has evolved into this next generation sequencing, um, the way that works, you take your DNA sample and you fragment your sample and attach the DNA fragments to the surface of a chip or a piece of glass. And then the method uses an enzyme that synthesizes DNA called a DNA polymerase to incorporate building blocks, G, C, T, and A, which have each been color-coded according to the identity of the letter. And then by imaging the surface and looking at the stepwise incorporation of each of these building blocks and the changes in colour, you can decode the sequence of each of those fragments. In
2: 1998, they founded a company called Selexa.
1: The aim was to raise enough money and resources to develop this technology all the way through to a system that could be put into the hands of users and um around 2006 was the time that selexa released the first sequencing system that used this technology and this was called the genome analyzer and that system could sequence a billion letters of dna in a single experiment as compared to going back when we started the project around 97 The state of the art was of the order of hundreds of thousands of letters per experiment.
2: Professors Balasubramanian and Kleneman successfully managed to miniaturise the technology to allow scientists to pack in more and more fragments with different sequences of DNA into a small area. The cost of sequencing also reduced immensely.
1: The cost of the very first human genome was of the order of billion US dollars and this project took about 10 years. Today's systems, the high-end systems that use our technology will sequence one human genome per hour instead of 10 years and the cost of a genome has fallen to below a thousand US dollars and there's every expectation that it will get even lower over time.
2: That first complete human genome sequence was published in 2003. In 2007, Selexa was acquired by the American biotech and genome sequencing giant Illumina. Selexa's faster method of reading DNA is still the mainstay of sequencing machines today.
1: The reason this method turned out to be powerful is you could organize millions and in fact with today's technology it's literally billions of different sequences on the surface and you can sequence them all at the same time in parallel and by doing this you you get enormous speed and capacity and cost advantage compared to the old method.
2: So Hal, in terms of the technology to do the sequencing, is it still progressing at such a
0: rapid pace? It is still progressing at such a rapid pace. The first human genome took 13 years to sequence, and nowadays, sort of fast sequencing is on the order of 8, 10 hours. Uh, So it's sped up a huge amount, and it's speeding up more. There's a team at Stanford University that has just reported sequencing a whole genome in five hours. And there's also a team in Oslo, in Norway, that is talking about sequencing during brain surgery. In other words, while the patient is, you know, on the operating table with their their skull cut open and that's so that they can tell exactly what kind of brain tumour they're trying to extract by looking for the specific genes that mark its mutation and the reason that it's a problem in the body so things have advanced really quickly
2: it's incredible how far things have come in the past 20 years isn't it as part of your reporting you went to the sanger institute in cambridge in britain where a lot of the sequencing for sars-cov-2 happened can you describe what it's like there how does it work that place
0: yeah, so the Sanger Institute is one of a few institutions on this huge campus called the Welcome Genome Campus. Oh, yeah, We're going to put on that because I'll take yeah, my uh, stuff off. One way of thinking about it is that it's kind of an enormous scientific instrument that is, instead of like the CERN Particle Collider that looks at tiny particles or the telescopes in Hawaii that look at stars far away, the Sanger is dedicated to looking just at the genomes of organisms. And that's their whole. Focus. So you can fit 384 viral genomes in that tube, or you can fit 32 human genomes in that tube? Yeah. Okay, thank you. Think basements full of the huge white office printer copier type machines, laboratories full of robots that do what they call cherry picking. You get this sort of plate of 96 or 384 wells, each one has a genome in it, and the robot has to go and pick all of the ones it wants to sample and put them somewhere else. And Sanger is able to sequence somewhere in the region of 64,000 COVID genomes every week.
2: How important is Sanger in the world's COVID sequencing ecosystem?
0: It's probably the most important place in the world for it. They do the vast majority of the viral genomes in the UK, and the UK does proportionally the vast majority of viral genomes in the world. I spoke to Ewan Harrison, who's at the Sanger, and he explained to me how COVID-19 has facilitated this genomic sequencing
1: revolution. One of the good things that has come out of this pandemic is the spread of genomic capability globally because we need to be doing that everywhere. And getting genomic surveillance in to those countries has been a, a big improvement. And if now we can adapt this technology to be monitoring rare pneumonias in ICU patients, to be doing community sample monitoring, we can use it for flu, it's gonna be for RSV, it's probably gonna be for a couple of other respiratory viruses, but also we use it for, you know, for antimicrobial resistance, et cetera. So we can use it for pandemic preparedness because all these recent kind of pandemic viruses in theory, could have been spotted in the ICU patients earlier.
2: Hal, Sanger's COVID-19 sequencing is obviously very important, but of course sequencing is valuable way beyond COVID-19,
0: right? It is valuable way beyond COVID 19 because remember, you can sequence the genome of any organism. All living things on Earth have genomes, as far as we know. And so sequencing that can tell you a lot about any kind of life. And one of the big things that Sanger is doing, for instance, is something called the Tree of Life Project, where they're basically trying to sequence the genome of every single organism in the United Kingdom. But the really exciting stuff is for human healthcare. And uh, the NHS itself, the Britain's National Health Service, is leading the way in introducing genomics for looking after various kinds of diseases, starting with the sort of rarest and the places where genome sequencing can have the biggest impact.
2: So can you just give us some examples of the kinds of things that uh, human genome sequencing has revealed about human
0: disease? Yeah, so, so one thing that's quite cool is that there is this chemotherapy drug called 5-fluorouracil and for most people it works really well it kills the cancer cells in your body but for some people it creates this really bad severe reaction that can even kill you and that's about 3 to 6% of sort of cancer patients have this really bad reaction and it turns out that it's genetic that reaction is based upon variations in a set of genes known as DPYD gene. And you can just test people before you give them these drugs. And if they have this gene, you give them a different one that works maybe slightly less well, but isn't going to risk killing them. And if they don't, then you're all clear. And this is the kind of like clarity that genomics can bring to healthcare, it's basically a way of reducing risks, making treatment more efficient, and getting answers earlier.
2: All human beings are 99.9% identical in their genetic makeup. But the variation in that 0.1% of the genome can account for some large physical changes, from the way we look to the diseases that we might be susceptible to. A project that's revealed just how variation in the human genome can affect human disease is the 100,000 Genomes Project.
3: The 100,000 Genomes Project was announced in late 2012.
2: Catherine Sean is a doctor in medical genetics at the University of Cambridge in Britain.
3: And it's aimed to sequence 100,000 genomes from patients in the UK National Health Service, either with rare diseases or with cancer and it aimed to benefit patients by making new genetic diagnoses, uh, finding new disease genes, and also to introduce genomic medicine into the UK National Health Service. Dr. Sean specialises in disorders of mitochondria. Mitochondria are tiny organelles within our cells which are responsible for energy production through processes called oxidative phosphorylation and ATP synthesis. And mitochondrial disorders are rare genetic diseases which are caused by mutations in genes which affect those processes. And they can start at any age.
2: If a cell's mitochondria aren't working properly, those cells can't get enough energy to do their jobs properly. That can lead to a litany of symptoms in almost any part of the body, from migraines and fatigue to seizures or even gastrointestinal problems.
3: Mitochondrial disorders are quite challenging to diagnose because the symptoms can overlap with many other common or rare disorders, but we can get clues both from the person and from their family history. But diagnosis has traditionally relied mostly on an invasive muscle biopsy uh, with tests in the laboratory uh, which suggest the mitochondria are not working well.
2: After the biopsy, observational and chemical studies are usually done to see if the mitochondria are behaving as they should. But nowadays, scientists can sequence the DNA of the mitochondria instead to look for
3: errors. Before the last kind of five to ten years, we had to test one gene at a time. And gradually, there's been a shift towards being able to test a whole list of genes at the same time through next generation sequencing.
2: Because there are many mutations that can cause these disorders, sequencing the whole genome is a lot more useful than just searching for mutations
3: in specific genes. The research that we've been doing is in using whole genome sequencing to make diagnoses. And whole genome sequencing allows us to look at the whole of the DNA in a cell, and these are aligned against the known sequence of the different chromosomes and also the mitochondrial DNA. So it gives information about both the nuclear chromosomes and the mitochondria. The results from the
2: 100,000 Genomes Project have been quite surprising.
3: We looked at data from this study for 319 families where their doctor suspected a mitochondrial disorder. What we found in this particular group was that we could identify a genetic cause in about one third, but many of these patients who were thought to have a mitochondrial disorder actually had a completely different rare genetic diagnosis. Dr Sean told me that genomic sequencing will make a huge difference when diagnosing these disorders. I think that we should be using whole genome sequencing Especially for disorders that are caused by many different genes, which is the case for mitochondrial disorders, or for something like intellectual disability, can be caused by over a thousand different genes. So I think using whole genome sequencing and doing it early in the patient's kind of diagnostic pathway is really valuable. Coming up,
2: how can healthcare systems scale up genomic sequencing? And what problems might arise in that process?
3: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting when you found the one you'll get it delivered right to your door go to blue nile.com and use promo code listen to get fifty dollars off your purchase of five hundred dollars or more that's code listen at blue nile.com for fifty dollars off your purchase blue nile.com code listen
2: ever since I've been reporting on science genomic sequencing has always been full of promise.
1: Today we are learning the language in which God created life. We are gaining ever more awe for the complexity, the beauty, the wonder of God's most divine and sacred gift. In June
2: 2000, President Bill Clinton announced the draft publication of the first ever human genome.
1: With this profound new knowledge, humankind is on the verge of gaining immense new power to heal. Genome science will have a real impact on all our lives.
2: More than two decades later, there's still a long way to go in many parts of the world. But in the northeast of Europe, Estonia is beginning to implement a new technology-driven model of healthcare.
4: Regarding the Estonian vision of uh, implementing genomics in the healthcare system, the Estonian biobank and the work of the Estonian Genome
2: Centre has been very central. Lily Milani is the head of the Estonian Genome Centre at the University of Tartu, in the country's second largest city.
4: We have a biobank of 200,000 individuals that have been genotyped, and about uh, 3,000 of the samples have been whole genome sequenced.
2: That is really impressive, considering the population of the whole country is only 1.3 million. So based on this
4: data, we have
2: identified
4: hundreds of individuals with unique findings in their genomes and then further thousands with a higher risk for different diseases. And we have also run several pilot projects uh, testing the implementation of both these rare findings and how we can use a genetics first approach to identify people at high risk for breast cancer or high risk for cardiovascular disease. So Estonia would really like to use a preventive approach with a focus on genetics and how to use genetics to have a more tailored prevention of disease for these
2: individuals. Genomic information can help inform which drug might be best for a patient. We have run
4: a few pilot studies of returning
2: results to
4: Biobank participants, and it has included the uh, risk of cardiovascular disease and risk for cancer, but also drug metabolizing enzymes and they're also kind of explaining how different enzymes in our liver are breaking down different medications. And whether a person has slow metabolism or rapid metabolism for different medications. So this has been very interesting for different individuals and particularly around, for example, antidepressants. This has a very hot topic and people have really
2: appreciated the information they have received. It's the start of the personalised medicine infrastructure in Estonia. Genetics is one of the best tools to focus on
4: targeted or tailored prevention. And the other place where we can save a lot of cost is, of course, also uh, giving the right person the right medication at the right dose. Instead of going into cycles of trial and error with different medications, we could see or, or test whether this person is a slow metabolizer or a rapid metabolizer. Does he even have a functional enzyme for breaking down a specific medication or not? Are they at high risk for side effects? And a lot of this information is already there in our DNA. And it just requires one genetic test. And we could know all this in advance. So that's another important part of the Estonian Genome uh, Project and and getting this into the healthcare system. It shouldn't be a doctor having to order a test and, and wait
2: for the results for two, three weeks until he can make any treatment decision. And for the patients in the biobank who receive genomic data, a system is in place to help them understand and interpret that data as well. We have had uh, genetic counsellors who have uh, explained the information
4: that we have returned. And regarding cardiovascular disease risk, we have both involved general practitioners and cardiologists, for counseling of individuals and, and having a kind of treatment plan for them. The same applies to risk of uh, breast cancer. So they have never been left alone with information or the risk or so on. And overall, the emotions have been fairly calm, uh, satisfied, and, and they are happy about finding out. And very little anxiety or fear are coming up afterwards.
2: To scale this up across the whole healthcare system, Estonia will need to rely on its strong technology credentials. The country is, after all, known as one of the most digitally advanced societies in the world.
4: I think our major next step is uh, working closely with a hospital and to figure out how to divide these different tasks, because there's a lot of findings that we see could be implemented in the healthcare system. But we do need to run a lot of pilot studies to test the implementation of new algorithms. We should get the whole framework set up and a few examples put in place as well by 2023. So that is one clear and definite goal that we have.
2: Hal, we just heard from Professor Milani about Estonia's goals for a data-driven health service. But are there any other countries that are also putting genomic sequencing right at the forefront of their healthcare?
0: There are. It's starting to happen all over the world, but particularly in countries with smaller populations, and for some reason sort of Nordic-y countries. Uh, Iceland is fairly advanced in this, Finland, Denmark, and, you know, of course, Britain.
2: Actually, why is Britain so good at this?
0: Britain has managed sort of somewhat by serendipity, somewhat through sensible policies to build up a really strong genomic sequencing infrastructure. And the roots of this are in the Human Genome Project and the founding of the Sanger. And the government kind of put its shoulder to the wheel starting in about 2010 when it established a new kind of quango type thing called Genomics England and since that time Genomics England and another project called UK Biobank they've been sequencing hundreds and hundreds of thousands of human genomes and kind of learning as they go about how to do it better and faster and more efficiently and looking for patterns in human health that correlate with different patterns that they see in the genome.
2: So Hal, what does the future of genomic sequencing look like in Britain?
0: Yeah, so it it may surprise listeners a little bit to know that already in the UK, in the NHS, if you are a sick child or you have a sick child and you have a rare disease, you will get your genome sequenced as part of your treatment. Uh, People in their 20s now can opt in to genome sequencing for certain kinds of rare cancers and diseases. And that's been happening since 2019. And now the NHS is starting to build up this new project called the Newborn Genomes Project, where it wants to sequence the genomes of somewhere up to 300,000 newborns with the consent of their parents, and basically scan those genomes for markers of rare diseases. And the idea being that if you have all of this information very, very early, then you can treat whatever's happening much more effectively. And as ever with disease, the sooner you catch something, the easier it is to treat. So that's quite an interesting project. And Looking even further out, the plan is basically to sequence the genome of everyone in the UK eventually. But this idea that we're going to sequence everybody's genome in the whole country. It's not going to happen immediately. And while I was out in Cambridge, I spoke to Ewan Birney, who is one of the bosses of the European Bioinformatics Institute. It's kind of like the data processing yang to the Sanger's technical sequencing yin. And Ewan is a grandee of British genomics. He's been on the scene for a long time. And he told me that he sees genomic sequencing as one of those tools that doctors will use in their practice in the future, just one of many tools. The way the genomes will go into medicine will be like X-rays. It will become a part of medicine. We don't think of... We don't live in an X-ray world now, you know. And and doctors don't... There are many things where you come in... It's not that every doctor says, right,
2: straight to the X-ray machine, mate. You know, yeah. I can't diagnose you without an X-ray, yeah? But for certain things, they're like, I need an X-ray to understand what you've got. Yeah. yeah. And what about the, the data aspect of this? Genomic sequencing data produces data that's very, very personal to people. And it's fair to say that a lot of people might be worried about that data and how it's stored and what's done with it. Um, What are the sort of challenges in trying to sort of make sure that that data isn't misused in some way?
0: The challenges are many, and I don't think that has been fully figured out yet. It's a different kind of a project when you are storing the genomes of a couple of hundred thousand volunteers who were very excited about it. They trust implicitly in the project. They've come forward on their own. That is very different than building a data storage system and a trust system and a data protection system to look after all of the people's genomes in the entire United Kingdom. And there's some obvious stuff you could misuse a genome for. You could just learn that someone has a rare disease and use that information for some kind of blackmail type purpose. But there's other subtler things. And one of those is that your genome uniquely identifies you. So if somebody wanted to, I don't know, say, prove that you've been having an affair They might collect the garbage from your fling's house and sequence the genomes on all of the discarded cups and find yours and use that as evidence that that is what you've been doing and have that power over you. So it's a problem that doesn't have the answers yet figured out. And to be clear, the genome sequencing initiatives that are happening, they're not just rushing into it and going to sequence everyone's genomes and walk into these problems. These things are going to happen slowly over the course of many years.
2: Well, if I can just add a couple more examples to these sort of questions, which have been around for a while, so these aren't new, by the way, that um, should police have access to these sorts of databases or companies? Should your boss know that you have a predisposition for a certain type of cancer or a certain type of condition that means you might not be able to work in five or six years' time or something? These are things that are not going to be solved at the same pace as the technology improves, And on the other side of it, of course, you do want healthcare to use genomic sequencing. It seems like absolutely the right thing to do on that front. But then actually allowing it to be used elsewhere is is going to be very, very thorny. You know, if a full genome sequence reveals something that means you have a predisposition for something that isn't treatable, that's going to cause a lot of distress for people. Just devil's advocate, you might argue, why would you want to know that? Well, what would be the point of doing it?
0: Yeah, that's a very fair point. However, it's that classic kind of pub question. If you could find out the date of your death, would you want to know? And if you do turn out to have some kind of genetic disorder, which means that your life is going to be different in some way, maybe knowing at least means that you can plan for it. It at least means that you have control over the situation instead of the situation just coming out of the blue and knocking you for six.
2: Also, from people I've spoken to who've been diagnosed with rare genetic disorders, I mean, for maybe years or decades, they've had something wrong and no one can find out what's going on and they're feeling failed by the healthcare systems. And if they find that they have a rare genetic condition, of which there may be only 10 people in the country, having a name for it, having a label for it does help.
0: Yeah, that's often flagged as one of the main benefits of doing this. And let's not forget, You can't really solve the problem until you start to measure it. And if the argument is, oh, well, we're not going to sequence the genomes because we'd rather not know about these things we don't know how to treat, you've got a tag on the end of that yet. Like, we don't know how to treat them yet, and we're not going to learn to treat them unless we study more of these cases.
2: So you convinced me I'm very excited about the future of genomics and healthcare, but I'm actually old enough to have been excited about this 20 years ago too, when the first human genome was sequenced and Bill Clinton and others stood in the White House and said, that's it, we've solved all of healthcare now, now that we've sequenced the first genome. And it really didn't happen. So well, should we be careful about our optimism this time as well?
0: Well, we, we, I think we should always be careful about our optimism. But the reason that it's different this time is that when the human genome was sequenced 20 years ago, there was no infrastructure for doing this well. It was kind of like when the first car was driven on the roads in the early 20th century or whenever that happened. That was not a, a sudden switch to like suburban living and families with two cars and everyone commuting all over the place in cars like we see in America these days and all over the world. It takes time to build up the infrastructure that allows some new idea or concept to change the world.
2: Hal, thank you very much.
0: Thanks for having me, Alok.
2: And thank you for listening to Babbage. You can read all of Hal's reporting and more in The Economist. The link to subscribe is economist.com slash podcast offer. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin and mixed by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Alok Jha and in London, this is The Economist.